Another episode of LNFG for me, the podcast brought to you by your favourite non-profit independent record label, Last Night from Glasgow, where we'll hear from our artists discussing the albums that they've released. I'm your host, Michael Forbes, and on today's episode, we have Jonathan Lilly discussing the Gracious Losers' new album, Six Road Ends. It's a belter, so kick back and enjoy. So today on LNFG for me, I am joined by Jonathan Lilly. Jonathan, do you want to introduce yourself a bit more? Uh, not really, but uh, I think you've done it completely. I am Jonathan Lilly, and um, I, the, in the band The Gracious Losers, which is on Last Night from Glasgow um, label, and uh, I'm here to chat to you. Tell me about you. Oh, well, I'm Michael Forbes, and I'm going to be our host today, So, and I'm glad to be hosting you, so I'm excited to talk about the album. So Six Road Ends came out 26th of March. So how does it feel to be out? Uh, lovely, actually. Um, it feels like it's been hibernating for a long time, um, as we all have, I suppose. Okay. Uh, it was actually recorded over, mostly over uh, just two days in August 2019. And we'd started mixing sort of around about the end of that year. And then, of course, everything happened with the pandemic and uh, everything was kind of locked up in the studio for most of last year. So once um, we could get back in towards the end of last summer, able to finish things off. So, yeah, it feels like um, it was something that happened a long time ago almost because uh, it did uh, so yeah. it's lovely to lovely to see that it's uh, getting aired now and uh, getting its second part of life which is always the case with records you know the, the first part is writing it and recording it and then of course it has to exist in its own right yeah absolutely so like when how much of you did, had it done before like the kind of lockdown everything had happened then um, pretty much all of it uh, I probably did a couple of little revisits you know because I had the time to mm -hmm. sit and listen to the, the demos of things and then get oh hang on a minute that could go and we could put that in and maybe we could change that around whatever so uh, sometimes that's a dangerous thing when you've got more time to, to think about these things and you, you spoil what you did in the first place but hopefully um, it gave me the opportunity to improve a few things yeah uh, so but yeah m mostly it was all done before before then but just kind of got locked up the mixes got locked mm -hmm. up um, how did that feel then were you guys like were, was it quite like frustrating when it all yeah um but i guess it, it becomes a bit small fry in the face of what was going on mm -hmm. um and and not too important but yes uh obviously when you do things a big part, I guess, of um, being able to release something isn't just the the feedback and and an audience hearing it, but also it allows you to then move on to the next thing. You feel a sense of completion then, and sort of it clears the the decks for for the next thing you maybe want to focus on. So I suppose it being suspended like that uh, makes you feel like you're suspended in in your sort of creative sort of thoughts and what you can do next. How did like the rest of like the band and all that feel about it as well? Were they kind of the same? Were they? No idea. Didn't see them all year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were all at home. Well, um, was that like a discuss? Was that like? Was that right? We'll just le wait till like kind of things kick back up again, and then we'll start moving on from there. That's it. I, I guess that is the understanding. I, I've spoken to a few of them throughout the year, but uh, yeah, the, the Gracious Losers is a maybe I should sort of clarify it. It's the kind of band that's a bit of a, a sort of hit and run. Kind kind of band when we all get a moment of our time together then we try and produce something and it, it's sort of based around my songs I guess it's, it is my band and um, I'm very fortunate that I, I can use my friends that are in great bands and uh, have their own projects going on all the time so uh, it's always a case uh, even without a pandemic of, of trying to align the stars mm -hmm. and uh, wait for these opportune moments to quickly get something done so uh, I, I guess yeah it, it would be the 
same when we're thinking about coming out of lockdown and uh, the restrictions easing that hopefully people haven't got too much on maybe yeah. that's a bonus that, that nothing's been able to be booked and planned so we're all a little bit more available to to hopefully meet up and and get things going again so when it was like the end of like the last lockdown was that a case of like let's get cracked in like any last minute touches and stuff like that then um that was more or less just down to me and what was left to be done um things like little guitars or vocal things and that everyone else over those two days had done everything they needed to do so it was it was just me procrastinating probably holding things (laughs) up and uh yeah so no everyone was was all done and dusted and, and had their bits done yeah you can kind of be a bit of like when you have that length of time with something kind of sitting there and then you come back to it, I guess, and you're like, oh, you know what? Now, like a couple months later, I can hear that little bit in like your mindset's just changed or something. Because I've been like doing like music stuff as well. And it is that it's fine. Like one minute, you're like, I'm happy with that. And then you come back after that time and you're like, okay, no, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing when, I mean, anybody doing any kind of artistic endeavour, that point of, you know, when does the brush stop going on the canvas? How do you know when something's finished, when you're not copying something, essentially? It is completely new out of your head. And uh, yeah, how do you know when it, it is done? I remember mm-hmm. hearing a story about Kate Bush when, it might have been when Hounds of Love was out and it actually got to number one, but she was still going into the studio trying to improve it. Uh, the following week yeah because you could hear something that could be better in it and uh, the engineer was going (laughs) sitting there at number one what are you doing (laughs) um but yeah it's an awful thing yeah i try and sort of identify that end point that finish line by when i can't really hear my own hand in something it, it just sounds like it already existed or someone else did it. Uh, I, I don't like being able to hear the parts and the machinery kind of that uh, went into yeah. it. And I go, oh, I know the little trick I did for that. And I can hear myself doing that, you know. So it's it's really, and I guess that's what's nice about playing with other people is that you're not responsible for all the parts. Um, you mm-hmm. can hear the joy of what other people bring to it. Yeah, I like that. How has it been received, the album? Yeah, it's just been out a week, I guess, and uh, so far, lovely. Yeah, there's been quite a number of reviews that uh, seem to like it, which is nice. And yeah. uh, always a win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could, that's always the, the the interesting thing. We all want to be written about and and hear sort of feedback, but of course, that could go either mm-hmm. way. You know, people can say <laughs> pretty horrible things as well. What's interesting is um, just the number of different sort of takes on things and what they hear. Yeah. Like I've read some where they're mentioning banjos and mandolins and things, and I'm going, "There's no banjos or mandolins on this," <laughs> and even brass on certain songs. And I'm going, "What, what are they hearing there?" <laughs> <laughs> is it the sound of my voice sounding like a banjo i don't know but um yeah so that's that's nice you know it's it's a lovely thing that the whole in the ear of the beholder i suppose with music but um yeah it's it's not mine in a sense now it's whatever people yeah. make of it themselves and, and what they read into things do you ever think like commenting to the people that say like by, like by the way there's not actually a banjo in it or do you just let it slide <laughs> Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that, that's a discretionary sort of judgment because <laughs> sometimes, yeah, it's good to sort of say, no, actually, that that's some really nifty guitar playing there mm-hmm. that makes it sound like a banjo, and you you want to show off a bit, maybe. But other times, why spoil the illusion? Maybe you know they've achieved something from the way they've heard it, you know, yeah. in their mind, or and leave that mystery alone. You know, mm-hmm. who am I to spoil them? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think the one thing I there was especially on fire at the bottom of the sea. And I think I saw somebody else comment, but I just like, I saw myself in like the 1970s in a stadium, like with like long hair, like, yeah, like total cheering it on kind of thing. Was that like really big sound kind of thing? Like not quite like stadium rock. Cause obviously it's not like, I don't know, journey or something like that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> that kind of <laughs> Yeah, it's well. What's funny when you said that there, when you imagined that, you know, big stadium and then lots of people with long hair, it's a short hair song for me. Oh, when really? I hear that, yeah, yeah. When I hear the sound of that, you know, um, I, yeah, for some reason that it's more of a short-haired kind of song, yeah. <laughs> whatever that means. But yeah, so there you go. It just shows you, you know, the the pictures we conjure up in our heads when we when we hear things. Yeah, can absolutely. be so different. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, I reckon we'll go into the first song then, and that is The Big Land. Would you like to introduce this song and tell us a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, um, maybe you could tell from my accent. I'm from Northern Ireland and I've been living in Glasgow over 20 years now, but... uh, 
that one is maybe the most direct song about growing up in Northern Ireland and not that it's about Northern Ireland in itself, but just that idea of what defines you. Is it where you grow up? Um, we all know that that's pure luck and chance, you know, where we grow up, uh, where mm -hmm. we're born. Um, but yeah, certainly growing up in a place like that at a time that I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s there uh, during the Troubles, it couldn't help but be defined by that era that it was in and how others also viewed us um, living mm -hmm. there. And one of the things for me growing up that I struggled with was how am I perceived being from here? And, and you know, I've had um, very anti-Irish sentiments towards me uh, throughout my life and places I've lived and, and places I've gone. But more so from when I actually was there, I started to become very disgruntled with this idea of how limited the definitions were. You know, it just seemed to be all about violence or troubles or religion or politics. And I just wanted to talk about art and music mm -hmm. and things like that and felt that there wasn't any sort of forum for that, um, to, almost in a literal sense. Like uh, as soon as I got into music, I was wanting to see all these bands that I liked play, but none of them would ever come to Belfast because oh, yeah. of the troubles. So in a very real way, I felt deprived. Yeah, uh, And then I was wondering just, well, how is it depriving me sort of as a person and, and how I define myself? So the big land is about that opportunity of being somewhere else, um, not only the desire to discover other places and explore other places in the world and see if there's something else you can connect with that maybe you don't get from the place you're born in. Mm -hmm. I always think, uh, you know, that John Donne, the poet, said, um, to live in one land is captivity. And uh, I always think that's a great quote. And you only really understand it once you have lived somewhere else, that you realize how much you live your life by certain uh, preordained rules that, in the culture or society that you grew up in. And um, it's almost like when you, when you go somewhere else uh, abroad and you go, they have what for breakfast? Mm -hmm. you know, they, they go to bed at what time? <laughs> the kids can do what? You know, they drink this, what? And you suddenly realize that what you're used to doesn't have to be. It might not yeah. be the thing that suits you the most. And so, yeah, the song is about trying to find that sense of who you are and what you connect with more. And more specifically, maybe um, there's references to Egypt and the big land is that, that reference of Africa and North Africa. And having been there a couple of times and um, finding connections with things as alien there to, to my growing up in Northern Ireland, but also finding the similarities in places as uh, disparate as that, mm -hmm. uh, I think just is pretty fascinating. And we're caught up a lot, I think, in life with, uh, you know, when we think of the, all the isms in the world, the racisms and uh, so forth, the prejudices that are based on the sense of, of who we are and the divisions we create based on this sense of, well, you're, you must be less than or inferior to me because of whatever. But it's mm -hmm. all made up, isn't it? It's all yeah. made up. Everybody's um, in the same boat, aren't they? In the end of the day, you're all in this one big ball floating space. Like, why hate each other? <laughs> well, yeah, I would tweak that a little bit almost, Michael, and say, because uh, people talked about the pandemic being that we're all in the same boat. And uh, I heard someone sum it up differently, saying we're, we're in the same sea or in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. And uh, I think that fits more, you know, when it's about finding, you know, does this boat suit me? Am I in the right boat? Mm -hmm. Or could I be in a better one? Or, you know... Um, I so that's how we're all thinking about New Zealand at this point over in Scotland. <laughs> You're like, why can't we be over there or whatnot? Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, I had the, the good fortune to visit New Zealand years and years ago, uh, 15 years ago or so. And it was stunning, as you'd expect, absolutely gorgeous. And then I, when I got back to Scotland, I had to go all the way up north to see a friend. And everything I saw on the trip up north in Scotland equaled what I just had to go to the other side of the world to see. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we don't realise what's on our doorstep and how similar places can be. Absolutely. Like I'm very much into like mountain hiking and like whatnot. And when you go up to places like Torridon, Ullapool, even like out to Sky, Outer Hebrides, you're like, you don't even realize what's on our doorstep half the time. Yeah. But if you just took a couple of hours to go north or something like that. And I think that's what a lot of people miss out on a lot of the time. 
Yeah, okay. maybe maybe with the lockdowns um, that we've had in the last year, for me anyway, it's been a, a big thing just to get walking around my streets every day, just uh, lunchtime and things like that. And uh, yeah, even just sort of my neighbouring streets, I'm, I'm discovering new things about them that I thought, oh God, I didn't know that little garden was there mm-hmm. or that, that tower was there and so forth. So <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we don't have to go that far really to discover new things and to get a, a better sense of what we like or what we're suited to. I love that. Well, here it goes then, the first song, The Big Land. Top of the big land From the upper south To the northern mouth I'm at the center Of all we understand Still trying to figure it out Some kind of Paris in the sand On their knees, looking to the east. Women try to hide their lives behind their painted hands, but they all look like children when sleep. We live like children. We live like children.
So when you said like you recorded the album in like two days, so where did the actual album like start from and like where was the idea and themes and stuff? Ooh. Um, well, thematically, um, that was sort of retrospective. Sometimes you only see the patterns and things once it's all laid out. Uh, and that certainly was the case with these songs. Um, they seem to be about being sort of in between places and, and the big land a bit like that, you know, am I sort of from here or do I connect with over there and, and that in betweenness. And a lot of the songs are about the, the feelings that go with that, you know, being sort of just leaving one place and moving to another or being in one frame of mind and, and that hesitation of, am I doing the right thing by changing my mind or going to a different place? And so that, that sense of in-betweenness and hesitation with that seemed mm -hmm. to be a theme that went through a lot of the songs. And that's why it's called Six Road Ends. It's, mm -hmm. it's a place that I grew up near uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, it's, it's been completely overhauled now. It's not at all what it was. And, and quite literally, it was where six roads met at one junction. Uh, yeah. a total, total nightmare of a place. So <laughs> the experience of having to drive and go through this junction regularly when I was young um, seemed to sum up the feeling of a lot of the songs thematically. So, but that, like I said, that came much more retrospectively. That seemed to fit once all the songs were, were kind of in front of us. Um, Beginning-wise, we finished um, our first album, The Last of the Gracious Losers. When did that come out? 2017, 2018, something like that. So already, once we started playing those songs live, there were a couple of songs um, that we added to the set that I'd written just around about the same time, and they ended up on this album, Six Road End. So that was the beginning, really, having a couple of songs mm -hmm. that seemed to have a certain feel about them, and then just sort of expanding it from there. And... That's more or less me kind of going away and writing those by myself. And yeah. occasionally, uh, well, there's two, two or three songs on the album um, are co-written with Amanda in the band. And um, yeah, there's there's some sort of little scraps I had that I felt, well, musically, I feel I've got this, but I just want a different sort of lyrical perspective on what mm -hmm. she might pick up from hearing the music. And a couple of other songs, it was more or less... 80% done and I just needed to sort of one line or two or a verse to sort of fill it out and she's great for bouncing off for that. So yeah, uh, but apart from that, yeah, it's all pretty much me writing on my own and then sort of trying to get the band together to present that to them. Mm -hmm. And some parts are are very prescribed. Some have a definite idea of of what I want played and, and how and everything. And others, it's, it's completely open. And I, I guess that's dictated by how seldom it is that we can get together and play as a band because uh, there's a lot of us, there's about nine or ten of us normally. So that's quite tricky to sort of just be regularly in a room uh, on yeah. a weekly basis or something like that to test things out. So normally we've got to make the most of the opportunity when we do get together, which means I've got to be prepared for that and give parts to people. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be the pattern, but there's always what's nice about playing live and, and certainly what we've missed is how things change from what I've written or recorded and, and how it then gets fleshed out when we all play together. And it's uh, it, it can be a, a lovely thing to enjoy, but also a bit of a curse because then you hear, oh, we should have recorded it this way in the mm -hmm. first place. And uh, But we just, we just don't have that luxury. And, and certainly uh, in the last year, we've not been able to do that at all. Uh, for any future sort of plans um, for what we might do next. It's, um, yeah, it's really hard for, for everyone, obviously, in that position to, to bounce off other people. What song would you say has the most kind of separate parts then for everybody? Like, I guess maybe a better way to put it is what song features like the most members of the band? Um, there's, ooh, uh, the Big Land has, I think, nine of us on there. Yeah, all nine of us, the, the main core of the band. Um, so... Um, I'm doing all the acoustics and there's all the back and vocals from the ladies and Heather's doing a little bit of violin in there and, you know, drums and bass and everything's there and Johnny's on lead guitar. So that's, I suppose, what we present live usually. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of other songs, though, there's one called Everything Begins, Everything Ends, which has uh, most of us, but with um, a, a bigger string section, not just Heather, mm -hmm. but um, a string quartet on there, uh, if not a quintet, maybe, and also um, horns, horn section. So, yeah, that that's much broader in, in mm -hmm. featuring all of us and trying to cram us all in there. And the accomplice, an instrumental that we have, I think maybe has some strings on that, too.
it must have been quite like almost like a disciplined two days then everybody in like well for when you were in the studio must have been like come in let's get this done no no messing about yeah yeah and it was the hottest weekend of 2019 as well oh. <laughs> which you know trying to get everybody in instead of sitting outside the studio um and we, we recorded it in the hidden lane in La Chunky in, in Glasgow and beside that the entrance to the studio is a tattoo parlor and that mm -hmm. weekend the tattoo uh, parlor were doing some offer where you know i guess like 10 quid and you get a tattoo of your you know your choice or whatever so there was hundreds of people queued out in the sun <laughs> whilst uh, we were all trying to come in and, and record and they had like whip dancers and fire eaters and everything outside to entertain people it was it was crazy yeah my god so uh, that's sort of in my mind is an image of when we had to record it but yeah you're right we, we you do have to be planned you do have to be pretty disciplined and um not much room for experimenting uh, mm -hmm. when it comes down to that time yeah so you said like there was also the last of the gracious losers as well how did you feel like the two albums then have compared to each other in terms of that songwriting process and what went into making the albums um the actual songwriting was probably the same again me sort of doing the bulk of that and maybe a little bit more time for the first one um to sort of play together and find what works in, in some of the songs but no a lot of them you know, I can be a bit of a stickler, you know, once I have a, a, a part in my mind, I think, no, I, I needed to go that way. It's mm -hmm. a hook or, you know, it's it's a properly written part. It's not just jammed and uh, spontaneous. Um, and yeah, I guess more time to sort of try those things out and see if they worked or if there was another instrument maybe could be better. So rather than a guitar, maybe it was a horn or something like that mm -hmm. uh, for the first album. And we, we have more time to do that then than for this one. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the sound of the first album probably is a bit more cohesive, a little bit more, I'd call it probably country soul uh, kind of thing. Whereas this one, I think, is a little bit more eclectic, a little bit more mixed in terms of its sort of feel and, and from song to song. There's still a little bit of connecting with the, the sounds of that first album. But no, I think they go in a few more directions on this one. Oh, absolutely. So like, do you feel that like having all these, although like you are like the primary songwriter, do you feel that there is still like, there's a lot of like influences going through because obviously as well, there's a lot of people from, you've got like Sister John, you've got like Thrum and all that. Do you think those other bands as well, like influence what The Gracious Losers does? In terms of feel, yeah, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, I like them as people. And that's always been my sort of starting premise in any band I've been in is uh, I want to get on with these people and then see what musicality they bring or what they offer and I've been in bands even where people haven't even been able to play anything until they're they're well in the band and we're just making them play something <laughs> so that uh, they're good company you know um but yeah they absolutely bring things in terms of their sensibility you know um whether it's a melodic sensibility or a lyrical one um and, and just how they play, you know, for me, it's all about feel. It's all, you know, we can all, you know, you can find a, a hundred people just looking out your window that can play tremendously in, on an instrument, but only one or two of them might have the, the feel you want. Mm -hmm. uh, the, that expressiveness that fits with what you have in your head. So, or what I have in my head. So I guess that's what I'm looking for. Um, and if we take someone like Gary and Rory on drums and bass, because they've played together for a long time in Thrum, they absolutely have a, a sort of simpatico going there and mm -hmm. uh, a feel that is hard to replicate um, just by putting, you know, two random people in that don't usually play together. So there is use in that, absolutely, that there's people that have, are used to one another and play together. And uh, there's the shorthand there as well in, in how you communicate ideas and how you take things personally or not. You know, you, obviously in bands, you've got to say, no, I hate that idea as much mm -hmm. as I love that one. Mm -hmm. And it's how well, you know, people are receptive to that and how receptive I can be to that too when I feel they're right, you know. Have you been told like no, not not this, <laughs> not like, oh yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it should be in the KV. <laughs> no, John. <laughs> oh yeah. And the thing with a big band, you know, yeah, you can very easily be outnumbered very yeah. quickly. So, yeah, you got to pay heed to that.
I'm sort of like, oh, I think we should have a guitar solo here. And everyone's like, no, no, you're the one on guitar. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that classic. That's why you sh- the band shouldn't be in the room mixing. Everybody wants their part loudest. You know? So it was last year you had like the final touches like on the album. Like when about mm. last year was that? It's all a blur. Yeah. I have no idea. The last um, year has been a blur. It <laughs> just when each was day it? is its own. When it might have been, well, I know actually we were doing some final um, touches just the week before the first lockdown. That was mm-hmm. when we did the final um, singing. Uh, the first song on the album, Till I Go Home, is all of us sort of singing a cappella. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially it was just going to be a cappella, the whole, the whole song. And then when we played live one time, we decided to sort of put a bit of music in with it as well. And then... When we came to recording it, when in that first weekend uh, in 2019, we did it as a band and hadn't done any of the singing. Uh, we we didn't have time. And when we came to revisit it during lockdown, I sort of thought, let's just do it a cappella. But weirdly, when I got the a cappella version back, I thought, no, I miss hearing the band bit in it. And so luckily we'd all sung in key and all sung in the right time <laughs> to slot them together and yeah. uh, stitch them in uh, as one big piece. So, uh, yeah, that was that was middle of March last year. So that was the, the last sort of finishing touches we, we'd done. Mm-hmm. And then, we, we oh, was it maybe September or October before we were able to sort of do the mixing finally? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That must have been like, what, just before the second locked, well, the Glasgow lockdown, essentially, when we went mm-hmm. into level four or something. So you must have just mm-hmm. like managed to squeeze that in. And like managed yeah. to go and like see each other, but like it's mental how that whole can't go into the studio kind of thing, and like everybody's obviously now home recording is the thing, and like that's totally in. <laughs> yeah, and the, there's always a mix of that anyway. The first album had a uh, quite a few songs that I just did at home, and uh, a lot of the parts. So certainly it's a bonus that we're able to do that. It's a bit of a lifesaver, and I know a lot of bands have been sending tracks to band members, you know, in sort of online waves, whatever you call that, but. Um, yeah, it's it's a great thing in the modern era, and certainly if you if you thought about this kind of pandemic twenty thirty years ago when we didn't have broadband and FaceTime and all those kinds of things to be able to still see family and, and one another um, would have been a lot tougher, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's good things and bad things about that. Uh, recording at home, you can sort of be find yourself in a bit of a vacuum mm-hmm. and going down certain rabbit holes um but at the same time it gives you a little bit more breadth to explore and try things out and experiment that you don't you maybe wouldn't have the time to do in a studio yeah absolutely i think you've got like you'll send a track to somebody and then they'll record it and send it back like two days later but then something's wrong and it'll be like oh well then we've got to do this and two days later it's sorted and you're like well if we were all just together right there and then it'd be done instead of this like waiting back and forth with like everything maybe falling out of time and the time it gets sent over it's but you know what it all has its benefits and again if it wasn't for that home recording it would have been Mm. a lot harder for them especially but yeah uh no I, i guess one of the big costs um of home recording is just the feel thing again. Uh, you're, you get more caught up in trying to do the perfect take when you're just doing it at home. You, you know, you're using your own judgment and going, oh, I could do that better when often the, the, the right take is the imperfect one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you just leave it in there because everything else, the, the eye contact with other people is really what gets you know, what you're playing to and their body language and everything. So things aren't on the grid, aren't buying on the meter uh, in tempo or anything. They can be slightly off, but feel much better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, that's a cost. I think we lose a bit of that. I think when we record at home. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, then I think we'll move on to the second song, which is fire at the bottom of the sea. Would you like to introduce this song again and tell us a little bit about what it's about? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's it's a short-haired song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, fast and furious. You don't need long hair to, to cause wind drag or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it's, I suppose, a little kind of um, tribute to not cinema in general, but the relationship we have with the screen. I, mm-hmm. I guess is is what it's more about and the title refers to actual things and a lot of my songs would start off often with what sounds like a metaphor but is an existing thing uh, or an, a, a real experience that I've had so um, 
that was yeah something I saw on film one time where there, there are these fires that exist in the, the ocean bed that mm-hmm. uh, seem inexplicable how on earth could they possibly exist but but they're there and um, I remember that image coming back to me when I first saw the actress Jenna Rollins perform in a couple of movies I just thought she, she's just this sort of wonder of the world you know yeah. I'm seeing her do things in, in this art form that uh, I haven't seen anyone else do and it seemed absurd almost it, it's it was that good and that different and original so yeah it's it's a guess that songs about that feeling of connecting and, and being wowed by something on a screen and the relationship you you want to be closer to Mm-hmm. When you see something like that, you want to yeah. have a piece of it. But obviously with seeing the things that we see on a cinema screen, they're always out of reach. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all about that. Yeah. question then obviously mm-hmm. you spoke about film a lot and in your like what's kind of coming in the songs and stuff does cinema and film and obviously like other arts does that have a big impact on your songwriting yeah i'd say it would um apart from loving cinema a uh, big passion of mine mm-hmm. um i would say i reference that more or, or it's a springboard for inspiration than other music is mm-hmm. um you know i think it's forgivable that people when they ask you about any music you've done or written that uh, they want to know what the musical influences were but but there rarely are for me um I'm, I'm hardly ever thinking about other music it's a it's a bit of a distraction i think when you're trying to write your own music to to be sort of trying to shoehorn someone else's music into mm-hmm. into those ideas so a lot of it comes from yeah just uh characters or how I see things mirrored in my own life with what I've seen in a film. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it goes into my real life in odd ways as well, like certain hobbies. Oh, I'm not sure I should be revealing this maybe, but uh, I've started it now. Um, yeah, like things like I used to sort of occasionally dress as film characters, like oh, really? down, down to the shoelaces, <laughs> you know, really accurately, yeah. but not tell anyone. I would just go, by my, go about my day dressed yeah. as certain film characters. And um, a lot of... I, I torture my family every time we go on holidays because I usually base my my holiday trips and locations around film locations oh, yeah. where where I get them to my family to reenact certain scenes. <laughs> um, That's amazing to a stupid level. So, yeah. uh, but it, it but in it, it's there's a weirdness about that that's lovely. Um, not just kind of well, that's an odd way to spend your time, but it means that you find hidden corners of mm-hmm. off the beaten track 
when you yeah. go to certain locations. And there's something about that sort of psychogeography. What what sort of remnants are there in a place um, from that? You know, where people that you're seeing and on, on a screen projected through light once existed creating it in the first place and you know the ghosts of that somehow might be there and you're looking out from the same point uh, like I did the same one time with um, some album covers as well you know like uh, an interesting one I thought was um, Highway 61 Revisited by Bob Dylan I was always curious as to you know he's sitting on those steps in New York. And I always wondered what he was looking out at, what's behind the camera. So as, as much as the image itself. So yeah, when I've had the sort of opportunity to be in these places and see them and find them, it's not just about an artistic way of trying to recreate an image. It's mm -hmm. about actually, okay, well, what was his viewpoint mm -hmm. there? What What is in the, the open space behind the image? So what did you see? What was behind the open space? Um, it was a park, actually, and yeah. uh, it it was a very cold day when I was there. And the house that the steps belonged to was having a birthday party. And I was uh, making one of my daughters try and take this photo of me sitting in the same position as Bob <laughs> Dylan. But all these people kept coming with balloons trying to get past us uh, to go into this birthday party. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I was a little bit self-conscious um, sort of sitting in these steps. Um, but, yeah, snow. I saw snow and I saw um, a park yeah. with all the snow in the trees and yeah. everything. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like the classic one, I guess, is everybody going on Abbey Road and like, but they're more for their picture of recreating, like you said, it's kind of positioning where the Beatles would have been at that time. I guess that's the most cliche version of that kind of take, I guess, but. Yeah, and that's a, it's a slightly rubbish kind of experience because you everything that's there to see is there in the picture already mm -hmm. you know the road and the crossing and the, the studio it, it's already there uh, in the actual picture but going to these other locations you've no idea it could be any wall or any step and uh, it's it's a harder thing to sort of grasp mm -hmm. what the, the locale is like i think it was a good twitter thread for it um, i saw the other day and it was iphone photos of famous album covers so there was like the led zeppelin one um Oh, the physical graffiti tenement block. Yeah, yeah, the tenement. And somebody like taking a photo of that was a good example. And it was quite like a fascinating Twitter thread, actually. And you were like, "Oh no way!" I was going to ask you a single, like, what what film characters then would you would have been like your favourite to dress up as? Intrigued. <laughs> Um, well, I even got rumbled the other day, just this week. Um, I wasn't even sort of trying, but obviously I've kept some of my wardrobe from when I dressed as Robert Redford <laughs> in uh, Three Days of the Condor. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my, I bumped into a neighbour and he went, oh yeah, three days, as soon as he <laughs> saw me. Uh, and I wasn't even trying to do that. Um, so yeah, that was that was a nice one. And um, oh God, now you're asking me... Um, I think one, yeah, I'd done one a few times as well of uh, David Hemming's character from Blow Up. I had that exact outfit um, as well. Um, oh, that's enough, surely. Don't embarrass me anymore. <laughs> no, I got it out of you. Like, that's perfect. So then like, there was other things like with cinema as well. Like I'm just really interested. So like The Accomplice, like that was that was music for a cinema club you had, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, a thing I started up um, a number of years ago, I, I was reading about um, when cinema was really at its height uh, in the world and certainly in Britain. And it was around about the 40s. Thousands and thousands of people would be going every week to cinemas. And, and in Glasgow alone here, Sucky Hall Street had, you know, countless cinemas. And Glasgow was called um, um, Cinema City, I think. And it had the most sort of cinemas per capita um, mm -hmm. in the UK at one time. So... Uh, yeah, it's, there's a sort of lost world when you rock, walk around the city. You can see the, the ghosts of all of these places. They still exist, but they might be blocks of flats or a bookshop now or whatever. But you can still see the signs of the grandeur that they were. I mean, there were palaces and um, a line that was uh, sort of used to refer to them was uh, a dream house. They were like dream houses. And I think going to the cinema is like that. And none of us have been able to experience this, where we go into this huge space to watch all our thoughts and dreams and nightmares projected large on a big screen and how we sort of uh, relate to those. It's mm -hmm. sort of um, a cathartic process going to watch these things, I guess, on every level. And 
that's I think something that's a shame that's disappeared now. You know, you've only got a couple of big cinemas left and, and none at all in the last year. And people's home cinema experience has obviously expanded. But they're not really getting that experience of a, a palace, you mm-hmm. know, uh, or a dream house. Yeah. Something really luxurious that takes you to another world and another place and another mindset. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm fascinated with that. And I wanted to recreate a little bit of the, the feel of that um, a few years back. So I wanted to create, um, basically, I turned my flat into a 1940s cinema, Michael, <laughs> once a month and uh, showed uh, unusual double bills, themed double oh, yeah. bills, um, because obviously cinemas used to have lots of double bills and triple bills. And it was much more of an experience to go for a long period of time and dip in at any moment. Um, you didn't mm-hmm. just necessarily go at the start of a film. You might just join it at the end and wait for it to come around again. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to sort of get um, give my pals initially an experience of an event, something that heightened watching a film and what it is to watch a film and make it special again. So, yeah, I had this little club. And one of the sort of offshoots of it was um, midnight screenings. We Every now and again, we would hold special midnight screenings of slightly... Uh, darker films uh, oh, shall yeah. we say and um, yeah I, I wanted to create a sort of theme tune for those um, every month when people would come I would have different music playing in relation to the themes of the double bills but I wanted to have the same piece of music for the midnight screenings and I I suppose what I had in my head was the kind of music that you'd get in Italian cinema in the, the 60s and 70s, Gialli, uh, it's called, um, that that kind of Italian thriller where, um, yeah, they're pretty bleak and dark and gory and horrible often. Um, and the music was incredible, though. I mean, they would probably look a lot of them like horrible little B-movies to us now, but the music was always extraordinary and and, and really expansive and atmospheric and emotive and with the accomplice on this album, I wanted to sort of revisit that thing I'd written and and see if I could expand it a little bit more. And I, I quite enjoy having instrumentals on albums mm-hmm. as well. Um, not, I don't mean on my own. Just when I, when I buy an album, I think it's always nice hearing someone open up a little bit more differently when the music's mm-hmm. leading it rather than just the vocal. So yeah, um, it, it was really that. It was just a, a little tune that I'd done for that that I wanted to sort of develop a little bit more as part of an instrumental on the album. I love that. It's just like that kind of space past like the singer to hear what everybody else plays it kind of at the forefront of it. And I, th- I think I totally agree having, it's just almost quite, a, not a break, just different i guess like when you are listening to an album and you hear it it's like some people may say like do it more for like a one minute kind of a join song like an instrumental mm. but if you have like a full song i guess it's put out to there it shows that singer can sometimes take a step back as well and be like here you go guys like this is yeah someone else. Yeah. and i think uh yeah sometimes voices just get in the way you know of of, of what should be going on and um it's naturally just because we're human that's the thing we tune into most easily and and, and mm-hmm. uh sometimes yeah you want to flex different muscles i think yeah. in, in terms of writing you know music um for me anyway it, it's nice to have the opportunity to to really you know spread out a little bit in terms of ideas and, and and challenge yourself a little bit too. Do you think that's why instrumental bands are maybe not all as, as successful is because people more strive for that, the vocals and stuff like that? I, I don't know if they're more or less successful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, are they viewed as bands maybe in the same way? Maybe they're viewed as composers or something, yeah. but they are actually a band. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, um, whether it makes them more or less successful. Um, I mean, I, I guess I base success off of a commercial kind of standpoint. And back then, I guess that would make sense, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's only if you're thinking about it maybe in terms of pop or or classical mm-hmm. rock. Um, you know, there's plenty of jazz and folk and yeah, classical music that it's all instrumental based and, and it's the same people doing it every time. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess we're just thinking maybe more limited in terms of mm-hmm. band bands. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need the singer, you need the guitarist, you need the drums. But yeah, like obviously that's the thing you go out looking and you can be amazed at like what you can find when you have a band you can often feel obliged to give a part to everyone Mm -hmm. and if you're writing a certain type of song maybe it doesn't need everyone on it Uh, but yet the inclination is there 
to use the people that you have in a band because normally if you play live they've all got to do something mm-hmm. but on a record um, you, you know it's a different beast you're, you're doing different things it's a different form so uh, you're not necessarily like there's maybe songs that I'm not playing guitar at all um, even mm-hmm. though live I'd be playing guitar every song um, sometimes I want to play the piano even though I've got a piano player but I want him to play an organ instead and whatever but uh, yeah sometimes we have to just leave people out uh, and including myself, you know, maybe just it's not right for the song. And you have to sort of try and keep that at the fore of your mind, I think. Well, I do anyway. Try and keep it at the fore of my mind that the song is the king. The song has to dictate what it needs rather than just the members of the band dictating that. So then I guess we can think for you then, what's next then for Gracious Losers? Uh, well, learning how to play again. <laughs> <laughs> How do we do it? How do we do these songs? So, yeah, hopefully if all goes well with the the restrictions easing in the coming months and, you know, we all behave ourselves as best we can and not go crazy. Um, some shows are on the horizon uh, towards the end of the year. Um, last night from Glasgow are lining up a number of concerts for, for a lot of the bands on the label. So it'd be really great if we can get to do that again. Um, so, yeah, around about November, I think, middle of November, we've got one scheduled to, to play. Um, and I suppose that would be a launch for this album, um, even though there's a quite a few months in between the album coming out and us playing um do what you got to do and uh yeah after that um maybe more shows if there's still venues open and we can do that i mean i'm trying not to have um too high an expectation Uh, i think we're in for a long haul with all of this Mm -hmm. that's going on so i don't want to get too hopeful and and have that dashed but if we can't play live still got to write so i'm already sort of thinking about certain ways to do the the next album and and that's nice you know now that the album's out six road ends is out um like i say it clears the decks you can sort of have fresh thoughts again about the next thing so mm-hmm. yeah um and obviously uh some people might know i'm i'm also part of uh, another band on the label sister john and uh we've we've an album coming out as well in the summer so in terms of my time i'll be busy doing some things with that as well and uh but for the losers yeah hopefully a show in November, uh, if not other ones too, and then next album. Ah, perfect. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I think we'll go on to the final song then, and that is Flood Came Down the Hill. Your last introduction on this one? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I guess we've been talking about film and art and things like that, cultural stuff, and Again, this is where it's sort of a metaphor, but also a real thing. When I used to live um, way out in the Trossachs in Scotland, um, I lived at the foot of a hill and we indeed did have a flood coming down the hill uh, <laughs> during a really bad storm. And it was one of those ones where you're you're watching it just rise higher and higher beneath your floorboards and starting to sort of decide which items uh, you want to save in your house. Um so yeah, it's sort of taking that notion of that apocalyptic kind of thing, right? Game's over, everything's kind of gone to to pot. Uh, what do you turn to? What, what are the things that you would save or cherish or want to cling to? And for all the the lovely things in life that we have, nice instruments or pictures and paintings and photos, really it comes down to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been put into stark relief in the last year that we've had. The thing that counts is people and contact with people and, and being with the people we care about. And so, yeah, it's about that final moment. Flood came down the hill where here it comes. What do we do? And yeah, it's people. Fell to the ground like something predicted. 
ended The sun hung cold as the I love that. And to finally sum it up, gave you that one question as you've been going into film and all that. If you had to save one last film, for example, <laughs> what do you what what would you choose? Well, oh well, yeah, that, that's easy now. If it's just uh, in the face of disaster, and I can only preserve one, I think I would go. For, well, it's a cheat. I'm cheating here, Michael, but I'm, I'm going to go for a, a, a film series. If oh, that's yeah. all right, that's okay um, with me. Uh, and it would be the German series Heimat. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I'm um, not actually. So wh- why I'm picking that, apart from it, it is something I absolutely love, it would be high up on my list of all time. It is about 60 or 70 hours long. So <laughs> lots of time. If there's nothing else to watch, then at least I can get into that. And uh, yeah, it's if, if nobody knows it, it's uh, a, a chronicle of Germany in the 20th century. Uh, that's the first part of the trilogy. And um the second part go and using uh, a family in a rural area of Germany as a sort of microcosm and, and how the century sort of panned out through the eyes of them and their experiences. And then the second part of the trilogy is one of those members of the family going to Munich in the 60s to study avant-garde music. And that was my entry point to it. It was uh, when I discovered it when it was shown on TV in the early 90s. And everything that lead character was about to do mirrored everything that was happening um, to me in my life at the time. Mm-hmm. I was about to leave home from a very rural place to go to a big city and um, sort of be, I went to art school and so I was around artists and musicians and things. So yeah, this, this epic, epic series that was a chronicle of Germany in the 60s that was a bigger part of Germany in, in the 20th century. And then the third part was, um, and this was all made by the same guy, uh, Edgar Wrights. And the third in the trilogy was about when the Berlin Wall came down and how the East and West sort of came back together again and the impact of the same characters and the family um, because of that. So, yeah, it, huge in scope. The, the ideas in it are extraordinary. And obviously it's trying to take in a whole century of uh, events and ideas and things as well. And at the heart of it is a guy wanting to do music. So, yeah, what could be better than that? Once again, thanks to Jonathan Lilly for coming on the show today. If you guys enjoyed listening to Six Road Ends, then you can go to our online store and pick up the album on vinyl at shop.lastnightfromglasgow. I'm Michael Forbes, and thanks for listening to LNFG for me. I'll catch you guys next time. LNFG.